What can wash away your sins, church? Amen. What a good song. I do, um, however, blame Micah for the snow because he picked, uh, picked a song that just continues to talk about it being as white as snow. So uh, you know who to point the finger at. It's not me. Um, I, I was actually the one who put that together, but never mind. I blame, blame Micah. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 6. Uh, this morning we'll be reading from verses 22 through 34 in just a moment. In 1965, the Rolling Stones had a a very famous song entitled Satisfaction, I Can't Get No. Uh, It was written by Mick Jagger, and uh, it was aimed, it was apparently written by Mick Jagger in his sleep, according to his own uh, testimony about that. I I don't quite buy that. Um, But nevertheless, he said he he wrote it in his sleep, and it was aimed at at his, his inability to gain satisfaction, either because he was frustrated sexually, apparently through the, the song, or by commercialism. Both of those things come up. But I, I think that that song resonated with people mostly because this is the way that life feels for us. It feels at times like we can't get no satisfaction. So much of our lives are based on that. We base a, a good deal of our, our life and culture in the wider populace of trying to get our views accepted by everyone else. That's what we would consider satisfaction politically, economically, or in terms of sex and gender, in terms of religion and science, for everyone to agree with us. And while that is true, sort of as a macro level, on a more personal level, we all desire some sort of satisfaction. We want to be healthy. We want to be well-fed. We want to be happy. We want to be joyful. But truthfully, it's not even fair to say many of us aren't. Many of us just continually have to go out and find places where we get satisfaction from. It is a never-ending search and quest for human beings. Where do we end up finding satisfaction? Where do we find happiness and joy and peace? And is important, and for us at least, culture-shaping book, Desiring God, John Piper says something, I think, fairly profound. He says this, the pursuit of pleasure, pleasure, satisfaction, I think the word satisfaction might be more full-orbed, but the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary, that's a really strong word, is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. So he's saying pleasure, your happiness, your satisfaction is necessary for worship. If you are truly going to worship God, if you're truly going to have any virtue in your life, any good in your life, pleasure must be a necessary part of that. It's not the fullness of it, but it is a necessary part. In other words, there is no true worship outside of pleasure, outside of satisfaction, outside of what you feel is good and right and true. He says the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. That is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So many people know that from the Westminster Confession of Faith is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But Piper draws attention to the fact that that is the chief end. There is one end there. And so he says the reason why there is only one end there is because we, we glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, um, I frankly don't care much about what John Piper says because I've listened to enough of John Piper to know that I shouldn't care much about what John Piper says, but I care an awful lot about what Scripture says. And the reason why I think that he is good and helpful on this is because I think that he is tapped into something that is, is fully 
embraced by Scripture. And I think that it is important for us to understand as well. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So while you can go to many, many texts in Scripture to find this, I think that we can find it here today in John 6, 22 through 34, if you would so kindly read with me. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread in heaven, or the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of our God. This morning, I want to point out three simple things that kind of work in tandem as we work through these verses about your satisfaction in the Lord. And first thing is simply this, you seek your satisfaction. You seek it. This is a a normal human thing to do. So we begin this story by noting that these people who are looking for Jesus have come down to the shore and they noticed two things very clearly. One, that there was one boat there that his disciples got into that boat, but Jesus didn't get into the boat. So he didn't leave with the disciples and the disciples have gone, presuming they knew that they went to Capernaum. They didn't see Jesus get in the boat, so I'm guessing they assumed that he went by foot. Now, they were right in that. They were wrong in that he went by foot over the sea, but they were right in the fact that he went by foot. They probably think he just walked around, which makes sense because by the time they get there, he is already there, which is why they ask the question of when did you get here? In other words, it's unlikely that Jesus would have left at night because walking around at night was probably very difficult on the rocky coast. So they would have thought that he would have left in the morning, maybe before they got up. And it's unbelievable that he would have gotten there before they did. But there's a lot of effort that goes into all of this before we even get there. So they think that Jesus has left and gone to the other side. Now, presumably, these boats from Tiberias were borrowed, or they knew the owners of them, the owners went with them, but they have to take the boats and they've got to go simply to find Jesus. They don't know where he is, but they're hoping he's in Capernaum. And so he gets in the, they get in the boats and they row the six miles across the sea in order to get to Capernaum so that they can simply talk to Jesus. And when they do get there, they ask him that all-important question, when did you get here? Now, who knows what exactly they're looking for? 
An explanation. It seems like there were more important things to ask a man who just the day before had multiplied fish and loaves. Perhaps this is more of a question of how did you get here, wondering if there wasn't something miraculous about how he got here. But nevertheless, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't he doesn't give in to their question. Time and time again throughout this passage, Jesus is answering questions that they're not asking. He refuses to answer them. Instead, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This response, I think, should be seen as something of a rebuke. Listen, given what happened the day before, Jesus says, you should be here seeking me. But you're not here seeking me. The only reason you are here is because you had bread put in your belly yesterday, and that's why you've come. And so there is something of a rebuke there. But I don't think it's an incredibly sharp rebuke. I think instead what Jesus is doing is going to start here in order for him to teach them. We're going to see that this rebuke will actually land for us by the time we get to the end of the passage. But nevertheless, he's simply saying that this is true. And I don't even think that at this point, Jesus thinks that this is all that wrong. I just The way he interacts with these folks, it doesn't sound like he's rebuking them at all. He simply says, this is true. You're not here because you saw a miracle. You're here because that miracle filled your belly. They probably should be there because of Jesus. They probably should be there because of the one who did the miracle. But nevertheless, that's not why they're here. They do miss the sign for the thing signified. They, they've, they've misplaced. They thought that the bread was the purpose of the miracle, but the bread wasn't the purpose of the miracle. The bread was to show the one who can give you bread. It, it's almost like next week when we go into our potluck. We'll be back in the fellowship hall. For some of you, it's not potluck. It's pot providential food preparation or whatever, so we don't have to be like we don't have to talk about luck if you don't want to, but nevertheless. And let's say people don't know where to go. We're going to put up a sign in the back, and it's going to have food written on it, and it's going to have an arrow. Now, if I were to catch one of you eating the sign because it had food written on it, I would say, son, you have mistaken the sign for what is signified. The sign wasn't there to tell you it was food. The sign was there to point to something else. That is precisely what these people are doing. They have seen the sign, and they think that the sign is the thing, but the sign isn't the thing. The sign points to something else. So there's a rebuke here, but I think what Jesus is saying is simply this. You're seeking your fill of the loaves. You're seeking your bellies to be full. You're seeking, in a sense, satisfaction. You were satisfied yesterday, and you're no longer satisfied, and you've come here today seeking more satisfaction. You are seeking what everyone seeks in one way, shape, form, or another. Pleasure, happiness, joy, comfort. It can be called a million different things. Listen, friends, you are no different than them. Every action that you take, every single one, whether it is something menial, whether it is something important, every action you take, you take because you think in some way, shape, or form, maybe not consciously, but you do it because you think that it will increase your satisfaction, that it will give you joy, it will give you pleasure. Now, what I don't mean is that when you go home and you do the dishes, that you wash them and you think, whew, that was pretty sweet. That was, that was all kinds of fun. And actually, I'm, I'm really excited for my kids to dirty 15 more cups so that I can wash those, those out because that that's not what I mean. I don't mean that you take great pleasure from it, but I do mean that you do even things you don't want to do because not doing them would be less satisfying. 
It's less satisfying to have dishes overflowing your sink with rats crawling all over them because there's food there and you not have clean cups or clean bowls or clean plates to eat off of, right? You know that that situation is less satisfying than doing the dishes and having clean dishes. That's why you do them. You do all of the menial tasks that you do, all the things that you dislike to do every single day, you do them because not doing them leads to a worse situation. Even the bad things in life, you do because they give you satisfaction in some way. They do because they increase your pleasure. The things that you do, you do because not doing them would be worse. The things you don't do, you don't do because doing them you think would be worse. It doesn't actually mean that these things work out this way. You're going to do things all the time that aren't going to lead to your good. They're not going to lead to being more helpful or more pleasure, but you do them because you think that it will, at least in the instant that you act. This is so basic, I think, that it is a virtual rule in humanity, whether it seems to be logical or not. This is why people act the way they do. This is why people kill, murder, and mutilate, because they think that this will lead to their satisfaction. They think that it will clear up problems or it will show them superior or whatever. Every evil action, every good action is done because of this. So the question then becomes, if Jesus is saying that, that this is sort of a basic thing, you've come here because your bellies are now empty and you want more food. How is it that you, friends, seek satisfaction? What is it that has, has made you happy in life? If everything you do because you believe it will make you happy is what you do, then what do you think will make you happy? Why is it that you go to work? What is the purpose of that? Some of you, no doubt, love your jobs. You go to your job and you are excited to do your job and it brings you pleasure all on its own. There are a good many of you, though, who go to your jobs and really don't care much for it. But every day you still get up and you go. You get up and you go because that job brings you other things that you want. What are those other things that you're working for? Why are you working? What is the end goal in that? What, what is the satisfaction that you are gaining from these things? Why do you watch TV? Why do you interact with your friends or your, your brothers and sisters or your family the way that you do? Why do you buy the things that you buy? Why do you eat the food that you eat? Frankly, why did you come here this morning? Presumably, you came here because you thought it was better than not being here. Many of you are probably rethinking that right about now. But nevertheless, you came here because you thought in some way, shape, or form, I, I, it's better for me, it would look better before God Almighty if I went to church instead of staying at home in bed. Or I made a covenant with these people to show up, so I'm going to show up. Or hopefully you said, I'm here because I want to worship God and I, am, I find great pleasure and satisfaction in that. But nevertheless, no matter what your real reasons were, you showed up here because of that. You've come here because it scratched an itch. When you don't come here, it's because it scratches an itch. Everything you do is to increase your satisfaction. So, Jesus isn't so much rebuking them as he is helping them to see something. And that second thing, the second thing that we're going to have today, is him helping them to understand what they should do with this information. So number two, if you seek your satisfaction, you should therefore seek the best satisfaction. Seek the best satisfaction. If you're going to do something, do it well. If this is the whole reason why you've gone out, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them, but he says, listen, you shouldn't be looking for food that perishes, but you should be looking for food that remains to eternal life. In other words, do it better, people. 
do it better. It's not wrong that you come to get your bellies filled, but that is not the chief end that you've been called for. This isn't the best way to go about it. I think he's working off a very simple idea here. It's the, the proverb of teaching a man to fish, right? You, you go and you catch a fish for a man, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fish, he eats for the rest of his life. One of those things, right? In other words, it's more satisfying for him to know the way in which he can get food forever than it is for him simply to be fed for a day. And Jesus is saying the same thing. If getting food in your belly is good, getting food that it lasts forever, that, that will always give you life, is better. Okay? So don't work for something that perishes and goes away, but work for something that lasts a long time. Seek your satisfaction, sure, but do it well. Do it well. And so again, we put before you, this, and this isn't a Sunday school homework assignment. I don't need any of you to respond to me with this. As a matter of fact, it's helpful if you don't talk to another soul about what I'm about to ask you, and you just ask, your, you just ask this to yourself, and you answer it honestly. Why do you find joy in things? Where do you feel like you get your satisfaction from? What do you find yourself thinking about the most? What do you find yourself working for the most? What do you find yourself wishing you could do the most? Because the answer to those questions is where ultimately you find your satisfaction. There might be smaller bits of satisfaction that you find around, but that is your heart's desire. Whatever the answer to those questions is, those answers are where your heart is really, truly pointed. Is it relaxing? You find yourself working all day only to think about the fact that you get to go home and to sit in your chair and take it easy. Is it entertainment? You're, you're excited to be able to watch that show again tonight, or you're excited to listen to that music or to play that particular music. Is that what is most important to you? Is it other people's opinions? Is it getting all those likes on Facebook? that you are most satisfied when that little counter keeps going up? Or is it simply material things? Let's be quite clear. Bread here is, is a helpful symbol because it's a symbol that's linked directly to what has happened, but it, it simply means anything. Anything that makes you satisfied, anything that makes you happy. Don't pursue those things that can make you happy for a short time. Pursue something that will always make you happy, that, that won't perish. So what does he mean by perishes? I think at least one thing he means is something that can be taken away from you, something that will leave you. It, it might even be a good thing. It might be something that you consider rather permanent, but eventually that thing can be removed from you. Some of you seek to be satisfied fully by your family. Parents, this is especially something that you can be guilty of. You can put all of your, your hopes and your satisfaction into your kids, and you will, regardless of how good those kids are, end up not being satisfied with them. And that's not their fault. That's your fault, because that's not where your satisfaction belongs. Some people with their spouses, some people with their parents. Eventually, all of these things can be removed. Your children will move out and they won't call you as much as they should. People will turn on their family members. Death may come and take them away. Some of you seek to be satisfied by your work. You, you relish a job well done. You get done with it and, and you feel like this is a wonderful thing that I've done and it might be tremendously good and you take great satisfaction in it. Skill will eventually rot out. Your hands will arthritis and you will not be able to do the work you once did. Some of you 
are satisfied because you have a wonderful brain, you're very smart, you're educated, or because you're beautiful, and, and you, you take satisfaction in beauty. Listen, all of these things can be taken from you. All of them. It is a horribly loose ground to build your satisfaction on, something that can be removed from you, because once it's gone, you are left without any pleasure or any satisfaction. So Jesus might mean something that's taken away. It could also mean something that's just vapid or easily consumed. The bread was certainly this. They put that bread in their belly no more, no more than 12 hours before. And now it's gone. It's already used up. They're already hungry again and looking for more bread. You might think that you can get away with this for a while, right? We think of those boa constrictors eating like a whole goat, right? And he's going to live off of that goat for about two months, right? But eventually, he's going to have to go find another goat. There once was a Scottish man by the name of Angus Barbary who didn't eat for over a year because he weighed 465 pounds at the beginning of that year. And for over 380 days, he didn't touch a morsel of food. He took supplements, he took vitamins and minerals, but he didn't eat any food and he dropped down to 180 pounds. But eventually, Mr. Barberi, probably missed that, but I think he's dead. He had to eat. He eventually had to put food in his body. Listen, food goes away. It cannot be ultimately what you find your satisfaction in because you need to continually replenish it. Video games, entertainment, even laughing, these things are all like that. They're all gone as soon as they're done. You watch a show. You listen to music. As soon as that song is over, there might be faint echoes. You might be able to hum it to yourself, but those faint echoes only call you back to the real thing. You can't just keep singing those songs in your head over and over again. Drugs and alcohol work the same way. All these things are like salt water. You consume them thinking they will fill you, but they are gone almost as soon as you take them in. And they actually require more out of you because to get the same feeling, you need to go back and back and back again. So what Jesus means by things that perish are either things that can be taken away from you that seem permanent or things that were never meant to be permanent at all. And I'm not saying at all that it's not good to find satisfaction in those things. I'm saying that you can't find your true and real satisfaction in those things. These are the things that Jesus warns us not to go after. Rather, Jesus says, go after the thing that will remain for eternal life. And Jesus helpfully says, and I can give it to you. Notice what he says there. The Son of Man will give it to you or will give to you these things. Now, he's talking in the third person, but there is no doubt whom he is talking about. The people who are here have no doubt whom Jesus is talking about. He's going to talk in the third person again, and they know exactly who he's talking about. He's not being coy. They know he's talking about himself. Jesus says, he will give you this. This is good news. And more than that, he says, not only will I give it to you, but you know I will give it to you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on me. I don't think he means here baptism, although he might mean that. He means all of the works that I've been doing, as we talked about in chapter 5. All of them show God's affirmation of the Son. He can do miracles because Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, has seen his Father doing those miracles, so he can do the same. So he has every right to pronounce this because the Son has been given life in himself just as the Father has, and therefore he can give life to whomever he wills. So the Father's seal of approval is on it. So he says, I can give you 
exactly what you need that might remain for eternal life. At this point in time, the people say, okay, well, now we're getting somewhere, okay? Now we're getting somewhere. Notice what they say in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus has said, don't work for food that's going to go away. Work for food that will last. And they say, bingo, that's great. Tell us what we need to do for that. And notice they're making the connection directly between eternal life and God. They know that this is, this is talking at a deeper level than just bread. And they say, that's what we want. We want to do that kind of work. What do we need to do? And Jesus says simply, you believe in me. You'll notice that he's, he talks again in the third person, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But nevertheless, they understand perfectly well that Jesus is talking about himself. You are. To get this type of food that will last forever, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. That means you have to trust him. You have to listen to him. You do what he says. The world is what he claims it is. His work for you is what he claims it to be. His way of life, as he tells you to live it, is what is best for you. That is what it means to believe in him. You believe in him as a rabbi. He says, you've called me rabbi. Now listen to me teach you and do what I tell you. The crowd responds to this. But it is not a faithless response. I think it's an inquisitive response, and frankly, I think it's a good response. They say, listen, we're, we're following you here, but you, you've got a, you got a bit of a problem here. So listen to how they respond. Then what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? In other words, they are listening very closely to Jesus. Three key words come up that Jesus has spoken that they return to him. They say, we want a sign. You talked, we were missing the signs. Give us a sign. Give us something to follow. What work, right? There's, there's got to be some sort of work here. They say, well, let's, let's see what this work is so that we can believe you. Okay, they say, this is our goal. If that is the goal, if that is the work of God, we want that. We, we want to have this thing. And so we're willing to do that, but, but we need something for you. And their explanation, I think, is this. In verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The implication here is, okay, you've been talking about bread. Let's, let's chat about bread. You say that we aren't to eat the food that perishes and that you can give us food that doesn't perish. But Jesus, the only food you gave to us was the food that has already perished. We're already hungry again. And you gave it to us one time. You multiplied it out of five bread loaves and a couple of fish. That's, that's fantastic. It was indeed a miracle. But you've got to realize Moses did better than that. Moses sent bread from heaven and it fell for 40 years in the middle of a desert. We were sustained, our forefathers were sustained for 40 years in the desert. You, you fed us one time, and now you're making this great claim. You need to do better than that. The quote that they give comes from probably several different places. Psalm 78, 11, Nehemiah 9, 15, Exodus 16, 4, and 15. There's numerous places where this thing could come from. In, in general, what they're saying is this. Scripture testifies all over the place that Moses did this, what are you going to do? Jesus responds to them, and he corrects them on a very narrow point. And it seems a bit odd. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. 
Now, you'll notice that they didn't mention Moses. Their quote had nothing to do necessarily with Moses, but he knows that this is their implication. What they're doing is comparing him to Moses. And he says, you're wrong. You're thinking incorrectly. It's not Moses who you should be worried about. Now, why does he do this? This This is such a trite thing to mention to somebody, right? It, it seems as though this is an inconsequential point. You know, they, they could come back and say, well, so what? It doesn't matter if Moses didn't do it. This is what happened. I don't think that Jesus is being trite. Like when you say to somebody, I'm going to church, and they say, well, the church is the people. It's not the place, right? Yes, that's true. The church is the people. It's not the place. But it's easier than saying, I'm going to 3307 Kiesel Road so that I can meet with the church, right? You just say, I'm going to a location. I wasn't making sort of a theological, ecclesiological point. I was simply telling you where I was going, right? Jesus isn't being that guy. Jesus actually has a reason why he mentions Moses here. He mentions Moses because they have again mistaken the symbol for what was symbolized. He's saying, I can give it to you. And because I've said that, you think that I'm comparing myself to Moses. He says, I'm not comparing myself to Moses. What is he comparing himself to? What does he say? It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not Moses. You don't need to compare me to Moses. You, you, You think that what I'm here for is to give you the things you need. I'm not here to give you the things that you need. That's not my purpose. That's not why Christ was sent. That's not why God sent me from heaven. I wasn't sent from heaven so that I could be another Moses and give you the things that you need. I was sent from heaven to be the thing that you need. Jesus isn't Moses here. He's the manna. He is the one who feeds and sustains his people. So, third point. Jesus is the best satisfaction. Jesus means to inform them that they can't simply keep looking past him. He is not the one who stands here so that you can come and ask him for stuff that you might be satisfied and he will continue to give you the things that you need to be satisfied. Jesus says that's not how this works. I am what you need to be satisfied. There is no moving past me. Moving past me is to not to understand me. Going past me is to not understand who I am or what I have been sent for. You cannot simply think, friends, that Jesus is just some sort of magic portal that will give you everything that you need in life. All those things that you might find satisfying in this world, you cannot possibly believe that Jesus Christ has come to give you the exact same stuff and just more of it. Money, power, fame, fortune, health, food, you name it. You are simply doing what they have done. You are mistaking the symbol for what it's symbolizing. You are mistaking Jesus for Moses, and he's not, at least not here. Jesus is better than Moses because he is not the thing that will give you what you need to be satisfied. He is the thing that will actually satisfy you. They noticed 
the goodness of the manna sent from God to help quench the hunger in the desert for all those years. Jesus has likewise been sent by God to do exactly the same. But unlike the manna, he will never rot. He will not need to be sent daily. He is sent once for all and raised to eternal life that he might satisfy your needs in every way, shape, or form. And so friends, be very, very careful when you pray. Many of you, when you're sick, people who have cancer, people who have many numerous and debilitating health problems will ask for healing and you should ask for healing. It is good, so pray for it. But I I guarantee you, there will come a day when that healing will not come for you anymore and you need more than just healing. You need the presence and the atonement of Jesus himself. Many of you need comfort You're going through difficult times in your lives and you pray for comfort. But I guarantee you, you don't just need comfort. You need the comfort that comes in Jesus alone. You need money and material things. You do. You need them in this world. God has so made the world that you have to have those things. But you need the life-giving ability of Jesus more. You need friends and family, yes, so you should pray for those things but you need the fellowship of the Son through the work of the Spirit even more. There is nothing in this world that you can be given that is more valuable, more pleasurable, more life-sustaining, more satisfying than Jesus Christ himself. He is the bread from God. He is what you truly need. He is what should ultimately give you satisfaction. He is the bread that lasts forever. He is the joy that never ends. He is the rest that is ever present for you. He is the comfort that will never disappoint. He is the sure rock upon which we should build. Friends, see the glory of God in this. The radiance of the sun in making us one with God and himself. We who were separated from God by our sins so that we were always at enmity with God and God was always at enmity with us. Always we were fighting with God and always God's wrath was upon us. He has nullified that and allowed us to be unified to the one source of all good things. Every good thing comes from God. It flows from God. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are freed from ever being separated from God again. What gift What gift could possibly be better than that? What what would you possibly go to God and ask for that could trump that? I'll take some money. I don't know. I would like my knees to work a little better. How flat, how uninspiring, how, how weak are those things compared to what Jesus Christ has done for us? I'll finish with a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis, one I have no doubt you have heard before. And actually then we'll we'll go to the Apostle Paul, something we've already read today, and we'll let Paul trump C.S. Lewis as he always does, but C.S. would be okay with that. Indeed, Lewis writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like, and this is the part that you would know, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friend, if you don't see the greater satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ, then you've been blinded by the world, you've been suckered in by the things that you see around you, you are deluded in your thinking, and your imagination is so dim it might as well just be turned off completely. Jesus Christ is better than all of these things. This is why the Apostle Paul writes this. I count everything as loss. Everything. And he means everything. Now, when Paul says this, he's in prison. He, he went from a high-ranking Pharisee who wouldn't have wanted for almost anything in his life to being a man who was beaten, whipped, and had everything happen to him. He was hated by Jews. He was hated by Gentiles. He was even hated by a good number of Christians that he brought to the Lord. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is precisely what Jesus is saying you ought to do. Stop wallowing in mud like filthy pigs doomed to destruction. Come and find joy and peace, rest and pleasure in God himself. Come to Jesus Christ, for he is truly the living bread. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would ease our ignorance of your glory and beauty and let us find our happiness, joy, and satisfaction in you alone. Your Son alone can give us all that we need and want, everything else, all the joys and pleasures of this world about mere signs that simply point us to you. Show us this day your glory, that we might taste and see that you are indeed good. We pray this, as we so often do, for our good and for your glory. Amen.